Hey, my friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. This is episode number 265, and today we're talking to Andrew Lang. Props to Andrew, because I've been sitting on this episode for a long, long time. Uh, I think we recorded back in February before my father passed away, and so this was due to go out in like March, but then life happened, and all the things, and his was one of the episodes that got bumped and sat on for a long time, and I'm in this place now where I'm trying to release episodes I had recorded, and also episodes that I've been recording over the last few months to kind of mix it up a little bit, uh, just so I don't get super backed up and like, you know, have ones from February that don't release until next February, I don't want to do that, and so I'm trying my best to kind of even things out, space things out. But uh, anyway, props to Andrew. Andrew, if you're listening, thank you for your patience and your flexibility. But good things are worth waiting for, my friends. That's what they say. And this episode is for sure uh, that is the case. Andrew wrote a book called Unmasking the Inner Critic, Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. And I don't know about you, but I have an inner critic and he chatters away all the time right? I mean, you should be doing more of this. You shouldn't be doing this. Why did you do that? You're stupid, right? You don't have anything to offer the world. Uh, You know, you're just, you're a fake. Uh, You know, for me, it's your podcast is terrible. Nobody wants to listen to you. You ask stupid questions, right? There's just this voice inside that pops up at the most inopportune times and sometimes the voice is really loud right like it's in your face and it causes a lot of anxiety but other times it's kind of like this very faint undercurrent that just kind of rides throughout your day with you and it's like this this like negative mentality that you just don't measure up right it just it's like there in the background even if it's not screaming at you in your face Whatever the case is for you, whatever the inner critic looks like for you, whatever he or she or they, whatever whatever they're up to today in your life, uh, this book is a must-have. Uh, it's going to help you find uh, that freedom from that voice and kind of give you these different practices uh, that come from the more contemplative tradition of spirituality to help you get a handle on the anxiety that that voice can so often cause. And what I love about this book is that you could it's a short book. You could read it in probably like a day if you wanted to, but that would be a mistake because in the book there's all these different exercises and questions to do and things to actually do uh, with your body to like move your body uh, in conjunction with these different uh, questions and exercises and the stuff he presents in the book. It's so good. Uh, I would highly recommend getting this book, especially like as we're as we're heading into the end of 2023, a new year is on the horizon. This would be a great book to get to kick off the new year with, like as the holidays start to slow down after Christmas and all the running around and all the shopping and all the cooking and all the stuff is done. This would be a good book to sit with. Uh, as as winter as we get into the 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 depths of winter in the northern hemisphere and <laughs> things get colder and maybe you're in a snowy area it's a great book to just sit with cut up with make some tea make some coffee get a journal 
and reflect because this book will help you uh, set up for some some success, really some personal inner success uh, in the upcoming year. So highly recommended. Uh, Andrew is a great guy. We have we have more things to talk about, so I want to get him back on the show uh, in the next year or so. But uh, I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. So all of Andrew's links, link to the book, that kind of stuff, it's in the show notes. Uh, also in the show notes is a link to my book, Rethinking Everything, my other book, Emerging from the Rubble, uh, and also a link to Patreon if you if you want to support the show. Uh, please consider supporting the show. I will say, I'll be vulnerable with you, and I'll say that in the last month, we've lost three Patreon supporters, not for any negative reason, but just because of financial Reasons which happens, right? Things happen. People people support. They stop supporting. Some people come back and support again. Uh, but a lot of people are just going through a time where they're having, uh, they just need every dime. And I totally get that. So, uh, But those people, they don't lose Patreon benefits, right? We have a Discord group. If you're a Patreon supporter, you get entrance into that group. They don't get kicked out of it just because they stop. They stop giving or they're not able to give. Uh, they're still part of the group. And so if you are able to contribute, uh, please consider doing that if this podcast has helped you, uh, encouraged you in your own faith journey. All the money goes to help us pay the bills. Uh, it literally goes to groceries and gas and the electric bill and, and things like that. So uh, the money's not going anywhere crazy. <laughs> it's just going to help do the normal the normal thing. This is like one of our you know, three or four sources of income because I do... Obviously, the podcast, you all know I do social media for Alexander Shia, uh, for Choir Publishing. I do social media for Bart Ehrman. And so there's these different streams of income that are coming in, but this is one of the one of the, the most important ones. And I, and I, actually, it's it's funny. I was talking to my wife the other day. This is random. But it's one of the, the lesser sources of income in terms of like the amount it brings in, but it's the one that gives me the most... Like it excites my heart the most. Like I just love doing this. Like this podcast, it's not. I listen to I listen to a bunch of podcasts, and there are other podcasts out there that they're much different. They're much more organized. They're much more edited. They're much more like they're more tightened up kind of thing. But this, I just love this podcast. Like I love sitting here, turning on this microphone, seeing somebody's face on this screen, and hearing their story and really seeing where the conversation is going to go and sharing it with all of you. And hopefully it helps you in your journey as well. So anyway, again, links are in the show notes. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your love. Thanks for your support. Thanks for being you. This is Andrew Lang. Let's unmask the inner critic. All right, hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We have a brand new guest on the show today. His name is Andrew Lang. He wrote an amazing book called Unmasking the Inner Critic, subtitled Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. And so, Andrew, welcome to the show. I've been excited to talk to you. I'm so stoked to be here, excited for the conversation. Thank you. So before we jump into the book, uh, can you give us a sneak peek 
of yourself, especially for people who aren't familiar with you and your work. Uh, who are you? What do you do? Give us the all the things we need to know about Andrew. <laughs> all the all the things. All the tidbits. Um, <laughs> so I've been a high school teacher for the past six or seven years and uh, mostly teaching humanities, although there was one month where I subbed in a ninth grade math class, which was real fun. Oh, boy. Uh, is it the I've new math? Did they do the new math? They did not do the new math, okay. but the key for me is that all math is new math. So right. it was it was a month of like trial by fire. It was it was a lot of learning alongside the students, yeah. um, which as it turns out is that's what I like to do. And and I think that actually shifts into, you know, while I teach and, and do all the stuff during the day and now I work in the educational nonprofit space, yeah. what I love doing is sitting with adults and kind of working through what are the narratives that you've had in your story that yeah. maybe didn't pan out and and what are you doing with that yeah. uh, you know what are the dreams that you had at some point in your life that that didn't turn out to be the life you lived sure. and how are you reconciling that working through that you know sitting with that yeah and so a, a lot of my work um is in this interesting space between spirituality and um I, I, it's not quite therapy. I'm not a therapist. That's not my space. Mm -hmm. But it's this interesting healing space in between where that that line gets blurred a little bit. And I think that's because both therapy and spirituality are the questions of you know what's real. Yeah. How do we and how do we connect with what's real? Yeah. So that's a, that's a little bit about me. I also yeah. like baseball. Yeah. You like baseball? <laughs> yeah. That's also what. That's your team? also Who's something your team? about me. Uh, Marin, I mean, I'm in Seattle. Mariners yeah. are my team. Yeah. I've I've stuck with them for. 30 years now and uh we've been through we've been through some moments <laughs> nice yeah you can see i don't know if you can see the back of me I've, i'm a yankee fan so i got some yankee yep. plaques up there i grew up watching them so they're all and i have my aaron judge rookie card on my desk here so i'm, I'm excited about that yeah <laughs> baseball season is here now what grades high school i know you said high school but like what ninth grade 10th grade 11th grade all grades yeah, so I, I bounced around. Um, okay. The schools I taught at uh, were consistently. So I, I taught at two schools. Both of them were six through twelve, mm -hmm. um, and the I mostly stuck with eleventh and twelfth grade. Mm -hmm. That's definitely where my strengths most reside. You know, how do you uh, help a student get ready for college? Specifically, and this is the schools I taught at. Um, most of my students were first generation college attenders. Right. Yeah. So how do you walk both them and their family through the chaos of filling out a FAFSA form, understanding all these systems that were not built for their success? Yeah. Um, and and that's that grade level was really where I, I found a lot of meaning. There were a couple of years I taught ninth and tenth grade. Uh, that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I was I was good with it um but but there was something there that um I've never experienced burnout quite like the years I taught ninth grade yeah they're like kind of still junior high but not really junior high and they're like in that weird spot yeah yeah and and there's the dynamics and we all experience these but mm -hmm. there's the dynamics of rank and power yeah. and a ninth grader coming in <laughs> having just experienced the eighth grade like power yeah. and all of a sudden being at the bottom again of yeah. this invisible social order um I, I think I had a lot of uh, I struggle. I, there were parts of it that I absolutely loved. And then I really struggled with parts of it because I just wanted to say, can you be a 12th grader yet? And, yeah. and that was my own stuff. I had to work through that. That entire year was me doing my own, my sure. own work. Yeah. Now your book, I mean, unmasking the inner critic, like how do you, do you see, can you see this stuff at work in the lives of your students? Because I imagine like, obviously all these students come from homes where we don't know what goes on in their homes, mm -hmm. but everybody's got their stuff. Like, can you see, 
some of these inner voices that we're going to talk about in a minute beginning to develop in these kids, like as you're spending time with them? For sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the thing about it is that it often comes out with students and mm-hmm. I'm not an expert with child psychology, sure, sure. Um, but I, I know a bit, you know, here mm-hmm. and there from, from teaching. Mm-hmm. The thing about students is that it often comes as a bit of a jumble, right? Based on different trauma experiences, based yeah. on what's going on at home. Yeah. And so that's why folks who use the Enneagram, you know, you're not supposed to type a kid. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, that's really not part of the deal. And, and it's because they're still forming. Mm-hmm. And so what I got to see were the beginnings of narratives kind of popping up here and there. Mm-hmm. And something I was very uh, focused on was when I saw a narrative pop up, try to identify based on the story that I, I know of, and mm-hmm. a teacher will never know the full story of yeah. a student, right? Sure. Um, based on the story that I know is this narrative a culturally informed narrative? Is this something that they have been um, taught by their faith community or by their, the parenting style at home? Or is this something that is uh, their friends are feeding within them? Um, Mm -hmm. Or does this seem to just be their response to a traumatizing world? Yeah. Uh, And, and so, and all of that obviously mixes and melds together. So I think I did a lot of work with that internally of, if I'm going to show up in an honest and authentic way for the student, what is my best guess at, yeah. at what they're what they're bringing in this space and what's behind the the narratives that are often you know I can't, I won't. Yeah. Right? What are what are beneath those? Yeah, I think that's really cool though, that you can come to your students with those things in mind because like looking back on my own life and my own education, like I wish that some of my teachers would have had that. Um, perspective when they were dealing with us, you know, as students, because, you know, I think that that's just such a helpful thing to know that there is stuff going on behind the scenes and in the background that you might not be aware of, psychologically speaking, that's, you know, help that's forming your students in the way that they are before you. So I think that's just a really cool way to be able to help them. So let's jump into the book, but to jump in the book, I want to start with a quote um, that you have. It's on page 12. And I was wondering if I'm going to read it for our listeners, and then maybe we can kind of dive into it a little bit. Uh, You say, where is it? Here it is. I found myself falling deeper into a contemplative spirituality, one in which the divine was best found in the here and now. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about this movement, or it seems like this evolution that you, you had in your faith, like where you were in your faith, where you are now, and most importantly, like what triggered uh, the shift that you're referring to here in the book? What does that look like for you? So I grew up in progressive churches mm-hmm. and uh, that's always one of the interesting ones with all of my like evangelical, former evangelical friends, Yeah, uh, because we all are deconstructing whatever we got given. <laughs> right. um, I just got, I just received very different things. Sure. Um, <laughs> you received so something, but different than I, everyone else. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, I grew up in the progressive church and by the time I got to high school, I had this very... Uh, just this feeling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think about myself, I had the scientific method. I had lots mm-hmm. of critical thinking, rational thinking that had been taught to me in schools and supported by parents and supported yeah. by the church. And so I was looking at this image of God that no matter how progressive the theology was, the default was still this um, cis heterosexual man in the sky who has yeah. this throne you can change the sermons every day or every sunday were were very progressive and didn't really focus on that but then the second the hymn started right it was like oh the music has is still from the 1940s got it and so i i grew up with these really 
curio- these curiosities mm-hmm. and these questions about, you know, what is this divine? And by the time I got to the end of high school, I was like, I don't, I don't think it is. I don't mm-hmm. think it's, it's what I'm being offered here. Mm-hmm. And what I'm being offered is kind of a jumble. Mm-hmm. It's not really clear. And the experience they had that really brought it home for me, and I shared this in the book, was on our last Sunday at this church, we we were uh, shifting gears, going to a different church. And all these community members were coming up to us and sharing, you know, we'd been there for 10 years. So mm-hmm. how beautiful it was to watch our family grow with them and how amazing it was to to witness me, you know, getting older and just being able to, you know, have a life together as a faith community does. Mm-hmm. And it was a fairly healthy faith community mm-hmm. from my experience. But a cr- and so I'm crying because other people are crying and I yeah. always cry when other people cry. <laughs> it's just what I do. Right. And from across the room, this tall man who had been at this church for years i think i think he was a child in the church so his entire life mm. comes striding across the room he's like six foot two six foot three and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he looks me mm. dead in the eyes and i'm just you know bawling tears going down and he goes men don't cry mm. and in that moment i just had this experience of if this is what the church has not, if this is what a lifetime of being in church means yeah. i don't think this is it like yeah. I can't, this isn't right. Um, because I think in that moment and in my uh, interpretation of that moment, what I realized is he was saying, don't trust your body. Mm-hmm. Don't trust your emotions. Yeah, uh, You got to fit into this mold that has yeah. been handed to you. Yeah, And I think that really shifted me out of uh, the progressive and uh, the progressive Christian space. And it also shifted me out of Christian space altogether and spiritual mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, when I share that I was falling into this contemplative space, it's because a couple of years went by and I still had this deep um, desire, as I think a lot of people do this desire for depth. Mm-hmm. And some folks find that in the therapy office, mm-hmm. right? They, they realize they touch upon a part of themselves that's much deeper than they ever knew existed. Yeah. For me, it happened because I picked up a book on male spirituality. Hmm. And I think those two moments came together. The moment of questioning, are you a man because you're crying? And the, what the hell is the spirituality yeah. that, that has developed this antagonism to humanness? Yeah, And these, these things came together. And I, I remember my brother and I were sitting on this couch one day and we're staring out the, out the window. We're looking at some trees and we're saying, you know, we have this desire for depth, this desire for presence, Mm -hmm. but we don't have the language for it. We've never, we don't know a tradition that does that. So what would, what if we just created a space where we could do this Mm. and we didn't have the language for it, but we were like silence. Maybe we would find like some small bits of a song that we could just sing repeatedly. So Mm. we don't have to really rationalize it, but we can feel it. Mm. We were talking about chanting. Yeah. Um, you know, throw some candles on (laughs) and meditate. And we didn't have the language for it really, but, but that's contemplative space. That was the beginning of this desire to, to sit with what is and figure out not in a highly rational way, but experientially, um, what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to, to do this thing? Yeah. All right. So you step out of that world, then you have this two year gap that you mentioned where you just kind of, you kind of sat with these feelings, then you enter this contemplative Mm -hmm. space. Where does it take you from there? Like once you got into that space, you started doing silence and like you said, chanting and candles, things like that. Like what resources came your way? What, what things helped you kind of take it to the next level 
to get to where you are now. Yeah. I bounced around a lot. It was a lot of experimenting. That's one of my favorite words. Yeah, experimenting <laughs> and playing. <laughs> Never like know what I'm like, doing. I'm just playing around. <laughs> yeah. I'm just yeah. seeing seeing what resonates. <laughs> uh yeah, I remember when I was in college and post college, I would hop on the buses in Seattle and I would miss miss stops because I was so engrossed in reading like Teresa of Avila, the yeah. interior castle or yeah. when I when I found Mirabai Star, uh, one yeah. of my favorite books yeah. ever, Wild Mercy, Living mm -hmm. the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. There's it was in, it was a lot of books. It was books yeah. and podcasts mm -hmm. that put words on my yearnings. Right. That that I mean, Richard Rohr is one of the names, right? That put put words to the experiences that I had and gave me more resources to to listen for and tools. Right. Yeah. I when I first started sitting in silence, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just sitting in silence and then three seconds later wondering I was why I was mad at all the sounds that were happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think that the, the the real, I don't, I don't like to use the word growth, the deepening mm -hmm. that, that yeah. happened from that beginning experience of, of testing the waters. Mm -hmm. What really happened is I found a tradition uh, and, and I was pretty anti-tradition at that point, yeah. but I found myself all of a sudden looking around being like, there's a lot of folks in this space for the last you know, 5,000 years yeah. that are speaking a very similar language. And it's the language of um, culture teaches us to run on autopilot. Culture teaches us to oppress others. Yeah. How do we connect to a deeper reality in the current moment? One that doesn't take us away yeah. from, from what is right in front of us, but allows us to, to resonate deeper yeah. uh, and in so many different ways. Yeah. So I, I love I, Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that because I think it's, you know, you you come, we come from different traditions because like you said, you come from a more progressive space. I come from a very fundamentalist, evangelical, conservative space. So kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. But at the same point, I feel like for me, like I got to this point where I was like, I don't know if I can be a Christian anymore because mm -hmm. I don't believe in this regarding politics or this regarding women or this regarding I these are Christian things from what I've been told. And like, I don't think I can do that. So I don't know what to do. But then as I started this podcast and had conversations with people like yourself, people like Alexander Shia, he's like a very mystical thinker, um, Bart Ehrman, um, you know, Brian McLaren, like these people who open my eyes to the fact that like, oh, like the, the stream of Christianity is not as narrow <laughs> as I've yeah. been, as I've been led to believe, like there's so many different streams and I can call myself a Christian and travel down these other streams and find other things that make a lot more sense to me and help yeah. me feel more at peace inside than I do with all these other things I was handed growing up. You know, I'll, I'll, so yes, yes to literally all. I, I think there's yeah. so much. Um, it, Brian's actually the one who I think really helped me settle my body in Dude, the space too. of like, yeah, yeah it's just, <laughs> there's, he has this presence to him. Uh <laughs> But he he allowed me to settle into because I'm still in this space where I'm Christian-ish. Yeah. Right. Like if we're gonna go down the list of doctrines and all of these things, like, yeah, I'm I'm probably gonna get excommunicated by a lot of different people. Right. <laughs> um, from all over the place. Yeah. And yet I connect with this this pieces of these these stories. And and Brian was really the the one who allowed me to think about 
creativity and play and experimenting, it's okay to kind of just be in this liminal space. And I'll I'll share my my favorite Brian story. We were Mm -hmm. down at the living school in Albuquerque together Mm -hmm. and we had just wrapped up. This was the week the pandemic hit. So this Mm -hmm. is March, 2020. And Richard Rohr had gone into isolation. They had taken him to his to his house and hooked him up on Zoom. So yeah. Brian was finishing the week with us, kind of running the show as the MC. And we get done. And my little group of friends are were wandering off because there's a uh, like a wildlife kind of it was not a wildlife refuge, but it was just a space that you could walk through and it just had mm-hmm. all this beautiful, these beautiful trees and plants and all these things. And it was still open. And Brian, we watch as he's getting in his car. So he's got his like suit jacket thrown over his shoulder. He's putting his, uh, you know, his bag into his car. And we know what he, what's happening is he's going to probably go to his hotel for the night and then try to catch a plane the next day if he can, which we were all worried about yeah. back to Florida. And there was something in our group that just said, wait, this is the moment. Hold on. And we yelled at Brian and we're like, Brian, do you want to come with us? And watching him in real time say yes to a group of randos, <laughs> you know, yeah. he, he he had seen us, but he didn't yeah. know us. He, yeah. You know, everything about his moment could have kept him going. He was on a trajectory towards his home in the midst of a chaotic, scary time. Yeah. And he said, yeah, I'll come with you. And so we went walking and Brian and I are, are chatting one on one. And all of a sudden he pauses. And it was this funny moment of this older man just like almost becoming a statue in mm. front of me. He's just total freeze looking up into the into the like canopies. And he goes, I think, I think, and he named some obscure bird that I've never heard of ever. <laughs> and I realized, oh, he's a bird watcher. He's a yeah, birder. Yeah. And and I had just this beautiful moment of here's a person I see as so successful in so many ways, pausing to just observe and listen to what's unfolding right in front of them what a great like eldering moment yeah yeah that's so cool yeah he's he's been huge for me because when i started like rethinking things like i had a ton of questions because i always had like an answer for everything that's just the the system i came out of was everything you gotta cross your t's dot your i's and you know you have to have an answer for all the questions and so I start rethinking this stuff. Now I've got no answers. And I'm like, what do I do with this first? What do I do with that verse? So I went and found him on Twitter because I'd read some of his books. I'm asking him these questions. He was so patient with me. And he like responded to every one of my questions in public on Twitter. And finally, he was like, you know, these are amazing questions. But at some point, you're going to get to a place where you're just okay with not knowing the answer. And you're just going to be okay with embracing the mystery of it all and realize that the mystery is in fact not something that's scary, but that in and of itself is the divine. And just sitting with that and being contemplative with that and pondering that and meditating on those questions, that's what it's all about. And I was like, that's crazy talk. <laughs> but then now I'm in this place for all these years later where I'm like, that's 100% right. You know, Because that's where I'm at now. Is like, I have no idea on any given day really what I believe about A, B, and C, but I'm so comfortable with that. And that's yeah. where I just, I love to be. Yeah. So Praise for Brian McLaren. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's a good transition. I have another uh, quote that I want to read for you. And this will kind of take us a little bit deeper into the book. Uh, but you say inner excavation paired with spiritual practices can lead to changes in how we see the world. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about this, that inner excavation. I feel like that's kind of like the root of the book. 
Uh, so like, what does that refer to? And then spiritual practices. I feel like that's a loaded, a loaded phrase, I guess, for a lot of people who grew up in the church, because typically it refers to prayer, going to church, you know, reading your Bible, et cetera. So what do spiritual practices mean for you? And then that piece about how we see the world, like what sorts of things in the world are we talking about that we're going to be able to see differently as a result of engaging in this inner excavation and these spiritual practices? Yeah. One of the things that's foundational to the way I, the way I view inner work and certainly the way the book is, is formatted is that at our core, we have something that Mm -hmm. is uh, inherent to us. I I refer to it as inherent dignity. Merton, Thomas Merton called it the true self. Howard Thurman talked about the, the sound of the genuine that emanates up from within you, but there's this piece of you that's, that's core can never be taken away. Mm -hmm. Um, Jim Finley refers to it as uh, as precious, this precious part of you. Mm. And I think so much of our culture, and this is how trauma works, is that we we build these masks. Yeah. We build these layers on top of, of this part of ourselves until we forget that that part of ourselves is even there. Mm-hmm. Because culture certainly isn't reminding us of it, right? Culture is reminding us to keep buying stuff. Yeah. Um, and so what inner excavation really means to me is how do we start picking apart the layers, not deleting them, destroying them, right? Not even diminishing them really, yeah. um, but beginning to notice them and peel them back, move them around mm-hmm. so that we can um, not diminish them, but diminish the power they have in the way they hold the, in the ways they hide our yeah. inherent dignity. Yeah. So that's the inner excavation for part for me is how do we tap in to this inherent dignity that's underneath all the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. The the part that's a spiritual practice for me, mm-hmm. and this is just my, I've done a lot of work in my, uh, since, since the moment with Dale in the church sanctuary when he said men don't cry, and I was like, well, this is garbage nonsense. Right. Since that moment, <laughs> I've done a lot of translation work. How do yeah. I take theological and religious terms and translate them to meet an experience that I've mm-hmm. actually had? So one of those for me is is spiritual and and another one is practices. When I think about spiritual, I think about connectivity. Mm. How are we connecting to what is real? Both yeah. what is real in our community, right here in front of me and within me. Mm-hmm. So any practice that helps us connect, for some people it might be reading the Bible. I'll mm-hmm. name that that's not that's not my jam, yeah. but for some people they there's this deep depth there for them and that's wonderful. Um for for me, it's walking in nature. Mm-hmm. There is not walking down a trail, and uh, only hearing the birds chirping and the like little critters around my feet yeah. uh, rustling through, and just seeing a magnificent tree. There is nothing that connects me more to the what is of our universe, yeah. which then invites me to connect with the what is of me as part of that universe. Sure. And so, when I say spiritual practices, what it really what I'm relating to or referring to is. Mm-hmm. What are the practices that we are engaging that help us connect with Mm. that inherent dignity that is within us and in a way that then allows us to resonate with the reality that that inherent dignity is within everyone and everything else Mm. as well? I, one of my, I don't want to say it's a pet peeve Mm -hmm. because it's pet peeve is so trivial. (laughs) <laughs> One of the the great sadnesses, I think, of spiritual formation work in mm-hmm. churches and outside churches. Um, lots of people who you know use the Enneagram or teach the Enneagram, lots of people who teach all these different tools, is that they turn it into personal self-help and that's yeah. it. Yeah. 
And that, um, it just won't do. Our universe and our world needs us to be in community. And and I, th I think it's part of the human experience to be in community. And yeah. so the question for me is, if I'm connecting with this inherent dignity that's within me, how am I honoring the inherent dignity within everyone else when I step out into my community? Yeah, that's that's the part that um, Thomas Merton tells the story of the the inner spring and the um, mm -hmm. and the inner stream, and the inner spring. Everyone's got one. It's our contemplative space, our prayer life, or our, you know, I I would say it's our experience of depths within ourselves, mm -hmm. right? And we have these streams. And the streams flow out from the spring. These, these are the ways we show up in the world. These are our mm -hmm. actions, the streams of actions. And he says, you know, if you aren't acting in the world, if you aren't engaging those streams, if those streams run dry, pretty soon your inner life, that inner pool, that spring, that's going to become stagnant. Yeah. And all of a sudden, and I, how many activists have I known that only focus on the streams, Yeah. right? Yeah. And And that's all they can do. Um, and that, and so they don't tend to the pool either within them. Yeah. So I, I think there's this interplay within all of us of inner life, outer life. How are we every single day engaging with our inherent dignity, sitting with it, resting with it, recognizing it, yeah. which is so countercultural, and then practicing that recognition yeah. in our communities, in the ways we, uh, you know, ask questions, in the ways we are curious, we have an open posture, we don't cross the street when we're. Uh, you know, faced with a stereotype we might have culturally taught into us. Yeah. Um, how are we engaging the the conflicts within our families? Yeah. I think those are all ways that we show up in our communities. Yeah. I love what you say about spiritual formation because in the world I grew up in, like I went to a private Christian school, then I went to Bible college, and I went to seminary, then I went to pastor church, and I went back to seminary. And all of that took place in this very evangelical world. And there's a lot, there's a lot from that world. Like I know it's when people deconstruct, especially out of that world, it's easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It was all bad, you know, burn it all down. And I was there for a while because you deconstruct out of anger sometimes. That's kind of where it all begins. Mm -hmm. And then for me, though, now I've started to take some things back and say, well, looking back on it, I think the spiritual formation pieces were really important for me as individual, because they were very focused on me. Just like you said, it was very almost like self-helpish, you know, kind of thing. Like it helps make me a better person and me a better Christian and me a better husband, a better father, things like that. But now I'm in this space where I'm like, well, it can't just be all about me because it's not just, I, I live in, a, I live in a lot of different contexts. And you talk about these spheres in your book, which I think is so fantastic. You talk about the personal sphere, the communal sphere and the societal sphere and how we live in all these different circles. And I think it's when we develop our, our spiritual formation and when we work on ourselves as individuals, as people, as Christians, that has to impact the other spheres that we live in. Because if it if it's not impacting, if it's just impacting me personally, but not my community and not my society, then how deep is that spiritual formation really going at the end of the day? Yeah. And I think this is so important is that um, when I think about this, and I and I know this because I've talked to folks who have said mm -hmm. this, when they see the spheres of influence, they say, "Yeah, we got that, right? Yeah, we do all of this. We we we're charitable. We give money to this, mm -hmm. and we we pay attention to that, and we talk to our family about these things, and that's all fine and good. The spheres of influence. When we talk about how are we engaging in the world, we are not talking about the fixing, saving, um, correcting, advising energy. Mm -hmm. You know, going out and um, trying to 
put our version of the future yeah. on someone else, right? Yeah. That's that's a colonizing force. Yeah. The the question and, and where your inner work becomes apparent in reality mm-hmm. is what are the energies you're bringing into a space and what are the energy or what are the ways that you show up that it is clear that you're willing to listen and follow mm-hmm. and not have your name attached to something, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I think about, so in the societal spheres, I'll, I'll talk mm-hmm. about, you know, what I also sometimes refer to as societal shadows. Mm-hmm. What are the things that our culture have deemed too big to fail? Yeah. So one of those um, is I'll pick out like uh, police abolition, mm-hmm. right? Or prison abolition. These are the way you know their shadows is that the second they're mentioned, a huge chunk of people immediately get defensive right. <laughs> or or they write the person. A bunch of people just heard me say that and immediately were like, oh, this person's uh, like far left radical. Go to the next anarchist. podcast. <laughs> exactly. Next podcast. So, you know, it's a shadow when there's a right. group of people that immediately get defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's interesting about big questions like that is uh, we often get defensive when it's something that we've been taught never to talk about, mm. never question, never yeah. challenge. And so part of the work is how do we lean into those those areas? How do we lean into really being honest about how white supremacy exists within our white bodies? Yeah. Right. As a person with a white body, I got to get honest. This is not a rational, critical thinking. No DEI work at yeah. my workplace is going to um, shift the fact that my body has yeah. been trained in a very specific white-centered, white-oriented way. Yeah. And so that's part of the inner work that is so integral to how we show up in our communities, not as fixing forces, but as um, walking in a new way force. Teresa of Avila says, you know, at the end of all this big journey, she, mm-hmm. you know, her interior castle, uh, in one of the final dwellings, she says, you're like a butterfly. And you're, you'll settle, you'll settle on something and then you'll take off again yeah. because it's not about becoming enlightened and then sitting on your butt for the rest of your life as the yeah. enlightened human. Yeah. It's about experiencing a depth of presence and experience and then moving into the world in a yeah. totally new way, bringing, um, bringing an energy that cultivates the beauty that's already there. Yeah. I love that. You said earlier about how these masks that we wear how we typically think that we have to drive them away or we have to burn them. Like for me, I said, before we hit record, it was always about, it's a demon. So we have to cast the demon away. And like, that's how we're going to find our authentic and true self. But you said something very interesting. You said, it's not about throwing it away. I forget the exact way you worded, but it's not about throwing it away. It's about almost inviting it in and learning from it. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us like a little bit about what, what, what does that look like? What does it look like to learn from, our masks as opposed to try to just rip it off and throw it away. What, what does that process look like? Can, can I share a practice? Yeah, please. Okay. So one of the practices is a super simple one that mm-hmm. has been really helpful for me um, because it it can be done with your inner life, with inner, and you can be done with literally anything. Mm-hmm. Um, or it can be done when you're walking down the street and you see an injustice, see something in the world happening. But the the practice is to sit with something and say, it is what it is. And how can I be present with it in a loving way? Mm. And so here's an example. Uh, When I, so a narrative or a a mask, I call them constrictions in the Mm -hmm. book. A constriction that I really wrestle with is this uh, inner narrative, this critique of my very existence. I'm not good enough. Yeah. And there's a lot of stories that 
led me to building that mask for myself because it was originally a protection. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's helped me a lot because if you feel like you're not good enough, it means you don't have to try. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, why, why bother doing that? You're going to fail anyway. Or mm -hmm. if you feel like you're not good enough, it gives you reason to push, 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 try to be the absolute best and climb that ladder even higher than yeah. everyone else. So it gives you purpose and a mission. So I sit with this narrative and I say, I'm feeling like I'm not good enough right now. Mm -hmm. That's why my shoulders are tense. That's why I'm grinding my jaw. Okay. It is what it is. This is a thing that's real for me. Mm. Recognize, right? It's the recognition piece. What are the things that are happening? How can I be present with that constriction or with that narrative or with that body tension yeah. in a loving way? Not yeah. trying to, you know, throw it away, mm -hmm. not trying to even change it yet. Um, just sitting with it and saying like, what would it look like right now for me to be present with my feeling of not good enough mm. in a loving way? For me, what that often turns to is uh, loving is understanding or loving is listening. That's probably yeah. the better way. Loving is listening. Yeah. So how do I listen to that narrative within me and understand what's it trying to protect me from right now? Yeah. Right. If this is a protective mask, what is happening that that part of me thinks it needs to be on high alert for. Yeah. And how can I be with it? And almost like a, a younger version of me, my inner child, right? How can I sit with them and be like, hey, little little Andy, it is yeah. cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you're all right right now. Yeah. And so I, I think that's part of it is um in inner parts work. Uh, so parts work or internal family systems, mm -hmm. they sometimes refer to uh, creating a listening room. Mm. And I, I almost imagine that imagine yourself going into a room with that part of yourself that is critiquing or mm. that muscle group that is, that's really tight and just sitting in a room and becoming acquainted with it. Yeah. How's it going? What's going on? Why are you getting all antsy right now? Yeah. Because if you can, and it's not from a, it's not from a rational, I mean, it is rational, but mm -hmm. it's not just rational. It's fully embodied because if you can sit with that part and tell it, you're right. I'm not here to destroy you. Yeah. I see you're trying to protect me. Thank you. Yeah. And it, do, do you actually need to do that right now? Yeah. Um, you, you can then leave that inner room, that listening room, and you can enter into the world in a way that's uh, less defensive of the things you might not need to actually be defensive about. Yeah. And so I, I think that's part of that. That's a practice that's really worked for me is just, it is what it is. How can I really name it, not judge it? Because most of us judged immediately, right? Oh, I don't like this feeling. I got to get the yeah. hell out of here. Yeah. Um, but instead, just recognize it, sit with it, see what emerges. Yeah. And there, and there's no, I, I don't know the other side of that practice for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. think that's important too. What you were saying earlier about what, you know, what Brian has kind of taught both of us. Yeah. It's okay to say this practice will take you somewhere. Yeah. And what emerges is the mystery. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. What does it look like to do that in the moment? Cause I'm thinking about like, cause the, the, mm -hmm. these, 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 these masks, these, the inner critic always pops up the most inopportune time, right? Like it's never yeah. at a time when I have <laughs> space to sit with you and talk with you. It's always like, I can't do this right now. And like, for me, I was thinking while I was, re I really got stuck on chapter on that chapter because that that's my biggest voice inside. Mm -hmm. And that's what, I was always told growing up is, is the demon is it saying you're not good enough. It's a demon of condemnation. They said it's a demon of 
self-doubt. It's like all these names they had for, we have to cast it away, cast it away, cast it away. And I spent my whole life trying to do that. And it would always come up, like I said, inopportune times. Like whenever I had to do like a presentation in school, I got to stand up to preach in church. Like it's now's not the time for this voice to come, but here it is. So we got to cast it away kind of thing, you know? So I was talking to my friend, Alexander Shia, and he was telling me, you know, what if that's not a demon? What if that's your inner child, so to speak, mm. who's parroting back to you things that he's heard throughout his life, maybe growing up that he's not good enough? And what if this situation that he's in right now reminds him of those times? And that's why he's parroting these things back. Like, what can you learn from that? That's that's a fantastic question. So I've been trying to do that like every single day when that voice comes up. But my question is now, now kind of full circle to my question, it happens a lot. And I've said this before in the, well, I haven't said this on the podcast. I've said it on social media, but every time I turn on this microphone to record something like with you or anybody, I feel like I'm going to throw up. Like I in immediately feel like mm. I can't do this. Like that voice just starts like you can't do this. Nobody wants to hear what you bring to the table. You know, like your, your podcast is stupid. Like all these different things go through my head. I'm like, now is not the time for the voice to come because I, I I can't turn everything off and talk to you. You know what I mean? So my question is like in the moment, like when you're in this kind of situation, talking to somebody, doing your thing and the voice comes up, like what, do you have any practices that can help somebody like kind of not, not tame the voice, but kind of like, I'm trying to think of the word, like maybe like quiet it a little bit so that we can give it honor, I guess, in the moment, but we're mm -hmm. going to, we're going to talk about it more later, but I just can't do it right this second. Like, what does that look like? So for me, the two, I sometimes call this a starting on the outside. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I say starting on the outside, I really mean um, working from the outside in. So what mm -hmm. you said about, you know, sometimes you feel like you, you know, you're going to hurl, right? <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. Um, starting with that feeling or, or for me, it's my shoulders, my body, mm -hmm. sh like, or my shoulders just get super tense. Yeah. Um, especially when I'm feeling out of control. And those mm -hmm. are like usually quick moments. Yeah. And so what I will often do is I will, and if I'm with someone, I'll mm. actually ask like, Hey, do you have a minute? Can I, you know, step away? Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, create even five seconds of space mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll name it. Like there are times at work where I cannot step away and they yeah. cannot step away. And this is a high pressure situation. Yeah. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to choose to tune everything out for 10 seconds. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go complete autopilot mode for 10 seconds yeah. so that I can relax my shoulder muscles. Yeah. Or so that if you're feeling like you're going to throw up so that you can stretch your body up and, you know, mm -hmm. move a little bit to the left and right, reorient yeah. your body. There's a practice that uh, anyone can do at any time. I have I was just introduced to it uh, maybe a month ago by Resma Menicum, who is a trauma specialist who focuses on uh, how do we work work um, through the traumas of white supremacy in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And he, I was in a workshop with him, a two day thing, and he had this practice that I thought was interesting rationally, and then I found myself doing it in in public everyday spaces. And I just thought, oh my God, my body's actually reacting. Mm -hmm. So a thing you can do in the moment is take a look around. He calls it orienting. Mm -hmm. Look over your left shoulder, really move your hips. Then look mm -hmm. over your right shoulder, really move your hips as you turn. And here's the key. Identify all the windows and the doors in that space. Mm -hmm. Essentially find your exits. Mm -hmm. Because our body, oftentimes the inner critic will pop up, right? It's a protective mechanism. Yeah. And so it's popping up to protect us from a danger. So how do we let our body know that 
here are our, our exits. Yeah. Right. I'm not trying to get rid of this narrative right now, but I'm going to let my body, I'm going to temper my body. So I know, okay, there are windows, there are exits. If something goes really wrong, you know, what's the worst case scenario is yeah. what my partner always asks me. <laughs> right. What's the worst thing that could happen? Right. And, and my body's response is like, I'm going to jump out that window. That's the worst <laughs> thing that could happen. If something terrible occurs, I'm out there or there or there. Yeah. So I think yeah. a huge part of this is, and this is the embodiment piece. Mm-hmm. Our narratives have been built and crafted within us for a long time. And so we should begin, I don't want to say should, for many of us, we will find that beginning with our bodies, Mm -hmm. recognizing what are the flags that are popping up in our bodies when those narratives are are alive and well, um, recognizing those. And then what are the body movements, you know, taking a big deep breath, what are the body movements that we can do to settle those narratives as if they are an inner child, kind of like patting, patting your inner child on the knee and saying like, no, there's the exits. It's all right. Yeah. And see if we can get another 30 minutes down the road. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. It's it's almost like telling, it's telling that inner child things that that child wasn't told when it was like when you were, when you were younger, right? It's like reminding that child of like, no, you were made to feel unsafe in that moment, but here's the reality to help you feel more safe in this moment because it's almost like you're telling yourself things that you should have been told back then that you weren't but now you kind of know better i guess like you know you know more and so you can you can speak back to you can almost parent back to that child in a way yeah. that you wish it would have been parented way back when yeah and and the power is that it's cyclical right as we yeah. do our inner yeah. work we become healthier and so that we yeah. can parent our inner child um, even more powerfully and res- like full of resonance than we were parented. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's really good. I want to read really quick for our listeners. I uh, just want to, there's nine nine of these constrictions, and just so they're aware of kind of what we're talking about. The first one you we just talked about, I am not good enough. Number two, I am not important. Number three, I am not lovable. Number four, I am alone. Number five, I am worthless. Number six, I am not in control. Number seven, I am not free. Number eight, I am my trauma. And number nine, I do not know who I am. And what I thought was so interesting, and you you just alluded to this, but is that I feel like so often, especially in spiritual formation, it was always about like going inside of myself and like, you know, I have to sit with my journal. I have to go sit with my Bible. And those are good things. There's nothing wrong with that. But it was always about, it was a very mental process to deal with all of my stuff But your book, you have, again, for our listeners, like there's a lot of exercises in this book of different things to do to work through these critical statements. And what I found so interesting is that all of them involve body movements. Like it's not about it. There 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 are instances where you say, because there's a lot of space in the book to write your responses, think about it, meditate on it. But you owe it like on every other page, there's like something for me to do with my body. And I thought it was so interesting that you invite really the whole person into the process of dealing with this mask. It's not just my mind, not just my heart, but it's like literally my whole being. And I thought that was really a really unique approach to this process. Yeah. Part part of this is the teacher in me, yeah. right? I, I, I was never going to be an author that writes a big 300 page book. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to write something that is a guidebook and a workshop yeah. in, yeah. in words. Yeah. Uh, so part of it is that. And then part of it is just you know, you read the chapter titles. This is not fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the most depressing <laughs> series of sentences right. ever said. Right. Um, 
And so I think I think there's an aspect of one playfulness, being able to mm -hmm. read these things and say like, "Wow, these suck. Right. Um, <laughs> these are brutal." Great book, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, awesome. You all should get a copy. Um, and and also, <laughs> like, as, if we only look at these narratives rationally and critically, yeah, are those critics that are within us, mm -hmm. those constrictions, those masks, um, they know how to deal with rational. Yeah. Right. They know how to yeah. they know all the defensive maneuvers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Richard Rohr said this. this. This was years and years ago that I heard it. So I'm, I might butcher it. But he said something about, you know, the power of poetry and music and art is that it it maneuvers around our ego mm -hmm. and pierces us in a deeper space. Yeah. And I think what I have experienced is that that's where body work comes in, is that just teaching your body to move in a way or act in a way that's different than yeah. we've been trained to yeah. opens something up in us that allows uh, for for processing to happen in a different way. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I I was never going to write a book that didn't have body practices. Yeah. I think that is a and my <laughs> one request, and I've said this to several people. Um, it's an interesting thing writing a book for the first time. People have come up to me and asked me to sign it, mm. um, and I have huge hesitations around signing a book yeah. and the re and so what i've started saying is you know if my signature is important to you then great um i'll do it after you engage with the book yeah so you know go journal on the pra on the on the uh, reflection prompts do some of the body practices and then come back and, and i'm happy to sign it but your life needs to be in that before yeah. my life is yeah. in that right like yeah. before my name is in it in that yeah. way that's so then you, you and you say in the book you say don't burn through this book in one sitting because you could I mean it's not like a super oh, yeah. long book like you could just blow right through it but you, to engage the practices and I think if if you do that it's going to take some time because it's not easy work <laughs> to sit yeah. with a lot of these questions and kind of think about their origins and things like that like it's hard work but it's well worth it well worth the yeah. journey yeah I I just got an email uh, yesterday morning that was so sweet. Mm -hmm. um, it's from a person who had uh, purchased the book, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago. And they told me they blew through it in two days. They were <laughs> like, I know you said not to, but I just had to, they blew through it in two days and they were going back through it. Cause the book comes with a companion course online mm -hmm. and they were going back through it with the companion course and actually taking the time to journal. And I thought, you know, I know I've purchased books that have space in them to reflect and journal, yeah. and I usually blow through it. Yeah, uh, it felt so good to witness this person. You know, she blew through this thing, and then was like, "Wait, I'm going to go back. There's more material connected to yeah. each of these chapters. I'm now going to take some time and actually work this yeah. um, because my initial pass uh, told me it was worthwhile, and now my body needs to settle with yeah. it. Yeah, that's right? so good. Yeah, that's so good. Well, Andrew, we're just about out of time, but I have so many more questions. We could do another episode or 10, but uh, this yeah. has been a lot of fun. Thank you for taking time for me. Uh, thank you for taking time for our listeners and thank you for your work. It's so important. Thank you so much for having me. This is super easy, super chill. Awesome. And uh, real quick, where can people go to connect with you, uh, your work online, any, any place you want to point us to? Uh, best place is just my website, andrewglang.com. I'm also on Instagram at andrewglang. Uh, and I, I send out a weekly email on Wednesdays that just have one teaching, a couple inner work questions, and some uh, resources for you to, to deepen with. Yeah. Awesome. Links are in the show notes, and we'll do it again soon. Awesome. All right, my friend.